welcome to Real Talk for Real Teachers. I'm Dr. Becky Bailey, the creator of Conscious Discipline, expert in child development, and a lifelong teacher and learner. For those listening who are not aware of Conscious Discipline, it is a comprehensive self-regulation program that integrates social-emotional learning and discipline. In general, it provides adults and children with the skills to be disciplined enough to set and achieve goals, conscious enough to know you're off track, and connected enough to others, fostering a willingness to persevere toward your goals. So what are real teachers? Real teachers are real people who have a life both inside and outside the classrooms. Real teachers often have stressful relationships with significant others or other family members. Real teachers may also be taking care of elderly family members or ailing children, yet they get up day after day ready to give their heart and soul to others. Real Talk for Real Teachers is a growing community of loving professionals who seek to love themselves as much as they love others. Today, we're talking about children in foster care and how we can help them. But before we get started, let's look at some eye-opening statistics. So on any given day in the United States, there are over 420,000 children in foster care. Now, let's just get that straight. That's 420,000 children taken away from their families due to severe stress or trauma. A child enters foster care every two minutes. On average, children spend two years in the system with the average of three different placements. So they'll stay in for two years and move three times. About 50% are returned or reunited with parents or their primary caregiver. But about 20,000 children age out of the system each year without ever having a permanent family. So if we look at those 20,000 kids, one in five of them will become homeless. 71% of them will, of the women, will become pregnant before the age of 20. One in four will experience post-traumatic stress disorder. And in regard to education, 30 to 40% of foster kids end up in special education. Wow. And we're the richest country in the world. Today, I've invited Amy Spidell, a master conscious discipline instructor for over 10 years. She's been an early childhood teacher. Currently, she's a parent coach in a pediatrician's office. She travels worldwide teaching about conscious discipline. But most importantly for today's discussion, she's been a foster parent. Amy, at the age of 25 years old, adopted two children ages 12 and 13 years of age. Welcome, Amy, to Real Talk for Real Teachers. It's delightful to be here. So tell us, how on earth could someone that young come up with the notion, okay, you know, hey, hubby, let you and I adopt someone about half our age and yeah. see how it goes. So how did you end up doing that? What led you to adopting these two children, ultimately? Well, we started with foster care, so we dipped our toes in slowly. And I think that uh, the foster care uh, bug was kind of in my family line. My grandmother had fostered 36 children in her lifetime, mostly babies. She was a nurse. And at that time, uh, she was able to just bring a baby home from the hospital and uh, give that little one care until they found a family for that one. 
so I was I was familiar with the whole concept. My parents uh, had one foster child while I was growing up, and so we had invited um, others into our family in various ways. So it felt normal to uh, to assume that role of foster parenting. And then uh, when Ron came, he was our third foster child. He had been in twelve different homes. He had fetal alcohol syndrome, and uh, he went up for adoption instead of going back to his family of origin. And we just felt like we couldn't continue the just that train of him uh, getting off at every stop. So uh, we decided to adopt him. And his sister also went up for adoption at the same time. She was 12. And we just felt that we wanted at least uh, the two of them to have some biological connection in this world. Wow. Okay, so Ron... He was 12 years old and had been in 12 foster care homes. Right. And some of that was back with his mom at various times. So he would be in foster care. He would be doing a little bit better. And then she would reclaim him. Uh, so some of that was back with her. But 12 different homes uh, in that period of his life. In fact, when he came, even after we adopted him, he would say, if I'm here next year, could we do that again? So he had no sense that there was any permanence, even after the adoption went through. Now, was that the same with his sister? Was her journey similar to his? Uh, Similar in that she was in foster homes. However, she was in the same foster home for about the first five years of her life, at least the years that she remembers. And it wasn't until her fifth uh, year that her mom came back and said, I'm I'm really your mom, uh, which was a just a giant shock for her. She remembers it um, as being just, you know, the upheaval in her life was amazing. She loved her foster family and thought they were her family. So anybody out there who's got a five-year-old, you can imagine what it would be like to have some stranger show up and say, I'm really your parent. Uh, But it did give her a different sense of belonging and being part of a family. Um, So she was able to uh, integrate into our whole family system, including with my parents and my siblings, in a much different way than Ron ever could. So when you got these kids, tell me about their behavior. And did you get any training that they say, you know, this kid's been in 12 foster care, foster homes? And I mean, did you get help or, or who or did you call for help? I mean, was there any Calvary going to come and help you with these kids? Yeah, you know, when the first two came, they were both toddlers. And so when they came, um, the only thing that that the, that the county seemed to care about was that we had room space, that there was a bed in the room. It was all very physical. We did take a psychological exam, but, you know, it was, it was pretty much, you know, are you a mass murderer? And if you're not, then that sounds good. Uh, so, no, no psychological training, no way to know what to do um, to help them uh, t- integrate or deal with the trauma that was involved. And especially with our little ones, when our first one came, uh, he was delivered at uh, six o'clock at night. Um, We found out at about four o'clock that he was going to be coming to our family. And they just dropped him off and left. He was one and a half and he had no idea what had just happened to him. So it was really, uh, you know, uh, just thrown into the fire. And I think the one that we did definitely say we needed help with was our son, Ron. And that was even when he was a foster child. I 
had a friend that said to me, either either he's going to get help or you're going to have to get help. But somebody's somebody's going somebody down. needs help. <laughs> <laughs> so either you're going to lose your mind or or he's going to need help. Uh, so we did reach out at that point. However, the help that they provided uh, was mostly they allowed him to go to a to a private um, school, a Montessori school, uh, so that, you know, the school issue wasn't so huge. Um, so they did do some of those kinds of things. But in terms of really having guidance of how we were going to manage the um, the behaviors and the behaviors were huge. So give me an example of some of these huge behaviors. Uh, and, and again, I want to put this in context because when we read the list of things that that could happen, um, they give you a whole list of things of what can you handle. And so the first ones were things like um, chronically lies, um, steals, runs away, and then you get down far. And we were like, oh, I don't know. That would be hard. That would be hard. And then you go down on the list and it says, you know, sets fires uh, in the house, cuts off the heads of small animals. And we were like, you know steals and lies. That's good. Let's do that. <laughs> so <laughs> now after you got this list of what you might yeah, see exactly. did, next to it was what do you do when it, you see it? I mean, no, did you get a nothing, no, just, nothing. just, just right. heads up. So heads up, you're in a war zone. Okay. Exactly. And in terms of knowing what we were getting into, quite frankly, all we knew was that we were getting a 12 year old who um, had some adjustment problems. That was it. We didn't have any history. We didn't know about the 12 homes. We didn't know about fetal alcohol syndrome. We didn't know what his history was at all. After we had him for a couple of months and it was like, this is crazy. Um, he can't seem to function in school. He uh, steals everything within sight. I mean, it was really pretty crazy. Uh, and we didn't know how to discipline that. We just started taking stuff away from him. And finally, you know, he just sat in his bedroom with nothing in it. We didn't know what to do when when he would violate other people's um, personal affects and privacy. Uh, so there was nothing. And then after a couple of months, they gave us his uh, his history. And it was just astonishing what he had been through. Uh, and no wonder the, if, you know, if he was able to get through it with only the things that were challenging uh, for us to deal with, it was a miracle. Um, but interestingly enough, I could have such compassion when I read his story but I still couldn't change the way I responded to him when these things would happen. I still was so triggered by it about how wrong it was that I, the compassion was there. I, I got that part. It just was, I couldn't translate that to getting myself out of the, out of the emotional impact of it. Let me just get this straight. So you just kind of get these kids are kind of dropped off. Right. You really don't even know what happened to them. And the help you got was they want to check to make sure you have a room and a bed and a toilet. Right. Right. And then there's not much information about how to deal with any of these behaviors, but you can expect to see them. And then finally, did anybody ever talk to you about how do you reach these kids? How do you bond with them? How are you going to fall in love? You know, did was that even ever mentioned? No, I, I I do think that at the time, and again, they may have improved a little bit since then, but at the time, the thought was that if it was a safe environment physically, that the children would adjust physically, and that that's really all that mattered was that they weren't 
physically hurt. It's one of the reasons why in foster care, children are rarely taken out unless there is physical danger. Um, psychological danger is kind of a, well, at least they're not bleeding. So right. no, it was as long as you can be safe with them physically, you know, like you know how to get them to the doctor and you uh, you know what to feed them, um, those kinds of things. But in terms of knowing how to help them through the trauma of being with total strangers, I, you know, I read Anne of Green Gables. I was waiting for Anne to show up, you know, <laughs> yeah. walk in the door and be so happy to be there. I mean, it was yeah. really kind of, and all my experience with young children, when we got our two toddlers, all my experience was in healthy situations where they were delighted to spend time with me. So it was a shock to have any of them come in and not know how to bond. Right. And, you know, it's amazing. You say that we hope we've improved. But if you look at the early childhood centers today and the people mm-hmm. who walk in, you know, they're making, you know, they get a, a checklist. Right. Are your are your electric sockets covered? Are your, you know, we're still going around and assessing an early childhood center, that's not a true. home, but mm-hmm. we're looking at, okay, there's an electrical wire that's hanging over here. Is the stove this? Is it, you know, and that's our checklist. And then, you exactly. know, it's like, okay, you're good to go. You got a license and we're out of here. So I'm not so sure we've we've moved as far as we wanted to, but let me just see. So you discovered conscious discipline then about, actually, when I started, I've known you for a long time, maybe 20 years ago when we first started. Mm-hmm. Now, what impact did conscious discipline have on your family? Now, I know you also have a biological son. So you have one biological son and two adopted kids. Is that correct? Yes. At this point. Yeah. Now, so what did, did conscious discipline help at all? Because this was later in life. Was it too late? What have you seen? Did it give you any strategies or skills? And were they anywhere near enough or effectual? What happened? Just tell us about that. Okay, so then my birth child um, came along when uh, Ron and Connie were 16 and 17. We had our little babe. uh, And I, I didn't, that was still before conscious discipline, before you had uh, written that. And so he was probably around, I'm thinking 12, when I read the conscious discipline book. I had read the um, There's Got to Be a Better Way, which transformed my life to the point that it could before conscious discipline came out. Uh, he absorbed it. He actually read the book right after me and uh, started using it on me faster than I could figure out how to use it with him. <laughs> so he definitely benefited a lot from that. And I see how he raises his two children now is much more linked to that process of um, empathizing and responding and teaching instead of judging, all of those things. You know, again, he's still got a little of I, I, you know, I messed it up in the first 12 years of his life. But uh, and every once in a while, he'll, you know, he'll kind of give them the evil eye and and I'll maybe look appalled and he'll say, you know, you did that to me. <laughs> so it's like, I'm so sorry. Um, but hit the impact on his kids has been huge. For Connie, uh Connie So no, let me just back up okay. here. So Ben was able to 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 hold that compassionate heart, manage those triggers and respond for the most part differently than was done to him in those first 12 years. Absolutely. And uh, and it's, you know, again, there's just a huge difference in how his two children are growing into their awareness of 
their own experience and feelings. In fact, his 10-year-old, um, he's got a 5- and 10-year-old, and I did something with the 5-year-old of just helping him work through an upset. And when uh, when we finally got up to where the 10-year-old was, we were walking downtown, and so it was... Um, he had gotten stalled out. And when I came up to the 10-year-old, he said to me, uh, you know, Grandma, you just have a way of uh, getting people to do what you want. <laughs> and I thought, well, that sounds pretty horrible. <laughs> and then he stopped. Before I said anything, he stopped and he said, no, no, that's not what it is. You help people figure out how to how to get through something, how to how to be able to change it. And so this 10-year-old, and he does this all the time with me, he's observing it and he's paying attention to what's different about this than some of the other experiences that I have. Uh, So there's, so it's a huge shift in this kind of next generation out because I think that Ben did it, but he still has some of that other tape. Lincoln doesn't have that tape. He now Lincoln. He, Lincoln. Who's Lincoln? Lincoln. Lincoln is, is the, Ben. Is my son's son. His oldest. The ten-year-old. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. And and the reason that he evaluates is because he doesn't have the other language. So he's trying to make sense of how it all works. It's really it's fascinating to watch, but that is their experience. And again, Ben had his set of parents. Um, he certainly had some trauma because we were still raising these other two that brought all kinds of upheaval into our home periodically in his early childhood. Uh, but for the most part, really knew he was loved, he was connected, he was uh, spoken to in appropriate ways. And I had conscious discipline before he was a teenager, which I think anybody out there that's has a 12-year-old, there's still time. <laughs> it makes a huge difference when you bring that in as they're starting to develop their um, their movement towards their own adult uh, response to life. So that's been huge. Okay, so that's been. Now, what happened on the other side? You've so, got Ron and Connie over there. Now, right. Connie's had a little more attachment. Ron has, what I'm hearing from you, pretty much none. Right. So Ron pretty much uh, checked out of our lives sometime after the age of 20. And we would, he would kind of uh, do little like, um, you know, mini appearances, uh, just knock on the door and and say hi. Uh, But really just never found that way to connect and feel, feel that. Uh, bonding. Um, Connie, because she had the first five years of bonding, was able to do that. And she has stayed very connected to our family and her children are very connected to us. So they're, uh, they're our beloved grandkids. And, um, I think that what changed for her once I started do, once I started really investing in, uh, shifting my perspective and my relationship, uh, with who I needed to be, um, it took time. It took more time for her than it did for Ben to trust that that shift had happened. Uh, but and now that shift in you is a shift from possibly what you're saying, that shift into conscious discipline. So you're shifting your intention, you're in, you're shifting your mindset, and you're sh- shifting with some skills also. Is that what you're talking exactly. about? And especially the whole blame element of yes. this is your fault and, you know, just all those kinds of things. Like, I think about how I responded when she first told us that she was pregnant. I would do it so differently now. 
and she got pregnant when she was 20, which, you know, as, as statistics go, that was a pretty brilliant, uh, <laughs> uh, hold. She's right on the money. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. At least she was an adult. Um, yes. but it was still, she, you know, I knew she wasn't ready. It was hard. Um, but, but the interesting thing with her is now that she has her kids, one of the things that she realized is when she turned 25, she came to me and she said, I can't believe you were my age when you adopted me. You know, so there was a little bit of a grace in our past that she forgave me for knowing that there wasn't any way that I possibly could have known what I was doing. Right. And... Yeah. And I think that there were many times when I was raising Ben that she would say, you do that differently than you did it with me. And I would say, I didn't know. I didn't know what to do. And I'm better now. <laughs> and I would kind of say it as a joke. You know, look, I've yeah. grown. <laughs> Too bad you weren't benefiting it from it. Um, but I think watching how I shifted with Ben helped her see a different way to be with her kids uh, so that they, you know, they still have a rocky road. It is still, uh, it was hard for us to realize that coming out of dysfunction and poverty isn't a one generational thing. It, it permeates the, the historical record and it's hard. So she's made amazing shifts from what she experienced as a, as a, a child growing up to what she was able to give to her kids. But mostly she was just able to keep herself from falling uh, under the waterline. And it was hard for her to keep pulling her kids up with her. But she stayed with it. And she, so she kept her children. She kept her kids. And, and now those children have some children. So now we're looking at the next generation. So what have you seen now? We're talking about generational things. And, and when we talk about conscious discipline, you know, that's the notion. I mean, we're going to plant some seeds in one generation that hopefully are going to mature and they're going to plant it in the next. So this is a, a long term. You know, people look at, well, how long does it take to do conscious discipline right. at my school? And we say it's, a, it's, a, it's an evolutionary process. And now we're talking with children with trauma and stuff that it is turning around that barge is shifting, generational barge is shifting, um, but now you've got one more generation. So you have uh, your adopted daughter's children have right. had children. Now, what are you seeing in that next generation of parenting? So I think with, uh, and I'll take Sean as an example, he's 20. Now, Sean is Connie's son, Child. her middle son. son. Actually, he's 22 mm -hmm. now. But when he was 20, he also had two kids. Interestingly enough, um, he had his kids at 20 and 21. They're one year apart. Uh, and Shayla is now pregnant as well. And she's 20. So I think the other piece that is just and I know from research that this is true, um, that it kind of follows that pattern. Uh, so thank goodness Connie uh, was able to um, really have support in order to keep herself from having babies at 
at very young ages, but at 14 and 15. Yeah, yeah. And again, not that that doesn't happen, and it doesn't turn out beautifully at some point, because it certainly does. Um, but in her situation, she especially needed more time to grow and to grow up. Uh, she became her mother's mother uh, when she was, uh, you know, five years old. She had to take over the responsibilities of the house. She needed to have those teen years to be a child. She was still going through her child years. So in foster care and in adoption, it's different even uh, when you have a young birth than when you have children who have at least gone through their childhood. Right. So I just want to make that point clear to people who may have um, children who have had kids at a young age that it's more damaging for somebody in foster care uh, who has gone through that whole trauma to have a child because they really do need those extra years to find their foothold. Uh, right. So that was what was great about this. Um, and I think the difference in them having children is that they... Uh, you know, I think that if I take Sean as an example, he was able to hear the support that we could offer. He had been in our home, my husband and I. He had lived with us off and on since he was 12 uh, because he kept getting into so much trouble. And so he had absorbed a little bit about the way that we do things. And he would say to me, um, only you and grandpa know how to be calm. Um, nobody else in the world knows how to do that. <laughs> and so we would say, it's not a mystery, Sean. And we don't, by the way, we don't always know how to be calm. Sometimes we get, well, John hardly ever does, but <laughs> I do. <laughs> so sometimes I do get angry. And we had this giant scene at my house once where I lost it with Sean. He was about 14. He, I got so angry at him. And I got to say, I know how to calm. I know how to have composure. But I was walking right on the edge of that composure. And so when one little thing triggered me over the edge, I lost it. And I shoved him out of the house. And I said, you don't need to be here. I don't want to do this anymore with you. I just screamed at him. And he went out of the house. And it was all all over picking up stuff in the yard and putting it in the basement. And he went out and he picked it up and he put it in the basement. And I was devastated, devastated, because I thought, I lost it and I never want to do that with him. And I went upstairs in our house because then I was going to take him where he wanted to go. Um, and my husband took me by the shoulders and he said, it's hard to do the breathing stuff with Sean, isn't it? <laughs> and I just was like, Yes. If this is hard. It's so hard to stay present to this. However, I got into the car with him um, because he had done what he was supposed to do. I took him to basketball and I said to him, I never want to do that again. That was horrible. I so lost it and it's never how I want to be. And I said to him, if you could do something differently, what would you? Oh, I told him what I would do differently, that how I would handle it differently. And I said to him, if you could do something differently, what would you do? And he said, I would have just put the stuff in the basement. It really didn't take that long. And the yeah. cool thing about that moment is he's brought that moment back over and over again. And he says to me, this is what he says, you're the first person that ever apologized to me. So... In Sean's life now, he'll take direction from me because he knows I'll take responsibility for myself. 
And that's what he yeah. says to me. And so when I um, talk with him about how he's going to be with his kids, he says, I want to be like that. I want them to know that if I make a mistake, that I'll own it. And so, you know, that's been a huge, um, a huge personal growth for him. Huge. I think it's huge for all of us. You know, one of the big things about conscious discipline is taking 100% responsibility for your own upset so that you actually can take responsibility, manage it, and then shift your attention, intention, and respond differently. So let's kind of wind up here, Amy. If we were going to give some advice to teachers, because these foster care kids are coming into the classrooms, uh, we're seeing the effect of the poverty, the repeated trauma. Let's go with just three or four things. Right after listening to this, what can I do? I know so-and-so's in my classroom. I'm going in there on Monday. What is my go-to? Give me four things, Amy. I'm dying over here just like you were. I'm kind of hanging out under the water a little bit. Help me. What would you say? So the first thing I would say, and and again, these kids uh, have likely... um, had more than just one upheaval. They're not just in foster care. There's trauma behind the foster care. Uh, So the first thing I would say is it requires that we build strong safety before we try to connect. They have to believe that there's not just their physical safety, but that their emotional safety is important and uh, to see them differently in that light. So to speak a lot of safe talk. So one of the things, especially for school age kids, would be that it's always about their safety first. So let's say that they threw something. Instead of saying, you could have hurt somebody, that could have hit someone, you say, wow, that wasn't safe for you. And that wouldn't be safe for anyone on the other side of that. And for some of these kids, they're going to say, how's that not safe for me? And you would say, because when your anger comes out that way, it hurts you inside, just like it might hurt somebody else outside. In other words, it's important that we honor the fact that they're trying to show us something by... um by doing things that are unsafe. They're, they're attempting to say, um, this is how unsafe I feel in this. Yeah. World. This is how hurt I am inside. Right. This is how, this is my insides coming out at you. And so what you're saying is to go back and say, this is not safe for you or the other person exactly. constantly going back to it. and start with them first. That's what I'm hearing. Them you know, first. It, if they take the table and lift it up over their head, it's not safe for you. And it's not not safe safe for the others. Right, exactly. All right, number two. Number two would be to build, um, then to build those connections. So once you have the... Uh, the safety and you're the safe keeper in a, in a very strong way with them. Then you're going to build what are those connections that say, I'm, I'm barely coming in here because again, they're very resistant to connection after a while. They've done too much of it. So you come and you go. And I think that that's why things like the wish well are so important because what it says is when you're not here, we remember you. So whether it's we remember you for a day or we'll remember you if you're moving to another school, you're in our hearts and you stay in our hearts. So Which that, starts creating some kind of permanency, some exactly. kind of narrative, a, a chronological narrative in their life. We, and for those listening, wish well is a, a, a process where you just have some kind of symbolic representation of yourself, maybe a picture on a magnet and a big heart. And if you're not in the school that day, 
They will take those absent, put them in the heart, and wish them well. And everyone knows this process is going on. So whether you're there or absent, you're in everyone's heart trying to keep and build that sense of school, family, and belonging. Okay, so we're going to do the wish well. So what's the third one, Amy? The third one would be uh, to help them with their story. So oftentimes uh, we get hooked into the current um, piece of whether they're succeeding or not succeeding and what they need to do. And we forget that they have a story. Uh, I worked with a little guy um, in one of the schools that was really struggling and nobody wanted to talk about his story because it was so hurtful. And one of the first things that I did when I was uh, making connections with him was to reference that. Um, to and, and I want to be careful that I don't say anything that would be um, private for them, but uh, it was about a loss that he had sustained. And at one point, he was he was just, this was a first grader, and he was smelling my hair. And he said, um, I like the way it smells. And I said, I wonder if this, uh, this person that he was close to who he had lost, I said, I wonder if maybe um, you've smelled hair like that before. I wonder if maybe her hair smelled like that. And he was like, do you know her? And then we just talked a little bit and I said, no, but, um, but I know that it was somebody, um, important and special to you. And he, that's all I said. And he hugged me. I knew this child for a couple of hours and it was the, the link to something that mattered. So instead of thinking, I don't want to talk about the fact that they're not with their parent right now. Um, I, I, we want to bring those stories out and give them some way to manage it. Another little boy who, uh, wasn't allowed to see his mom because they didn't feel that who she was with at that point was um, going to be safe. So they wanted to keep him safe, but he missed his mom. And I had these two little, um, glass hearts and I, gave him these hearts and I put one in each hand and I said this is you know this is your heart and this is your mom's heart and sometimes those hearts are together but sometimes they're apart and yet you still hold each other in your heart and and uh, he was about fourth grade and again without me saying anything he took these two hearts and he held them to his heart and then he said, can I put them both in my, in one pocket? And I said, yes, they can be together in your pocket. But it gave him a, a, a story of even when we're apart, there's something about us that stays together. And I've yeah. seen some teachers who one family member has banned the child from mentioning or talking about their father, for right. example. And she got a picture, the young boy got a picture and, and she put it right on his desk and the, the thing was, every time you want to just kind of connect with him, you just reach out and touch the picture. Right. And that kind of recharges your heart. So we've got a one, two, three. Last words, Amy. You've got any last words for people out there uh, that may be of service to them? The last piece I would say is that sometimes we feel that we just are a drop in the bucket and they're going to go on and there's still going to be more dysfunction in their lives to know that kindness has a way of winding that that softness into a person's heart and it lasts forever. 
So every time you can look into the eyes of a child who has had these kinds of experiences and may not have you as a support for the rest of your life, they'll hold that look in their heart and that will always stay with them as the message is, you are worthy of that love, of that look, of that connection. So no matter how challenging it seems, no matter how many mistakes you make, no matter how many times you forget and you yell or you're frustrated, go back and say, with your eyes, with your energy, with your intention, you are worthy, you are worthy. Beautiful, beautiful. So there you have it. And I think overall we're saying, the importance of those early years, the importance of finding a way to create safe, connected, and problem-solving homes and classrooms. And if we can figure out a way to do that, which is what conscious discipline does, then we're going to provide these seeds for all children. So now, Amy has set us up for our next steps. So she went through them brilliantly. So you can take those right now. There's nothing stopping you. And until next time, I wish you well. For more episodes of Real Talk with Real Teachers by Dr. Becky Bailey, visit ConsciousDiscipline.com forward slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app.